0: want to start out the sermon with reading some of, uh, you actually have it in the bulletin today, but Dr. Winnell's comments there, um, he talked about wisdom in his comments, and that tied directly into what I want to speak about today, because even though I didn't know what he was going to write about, and I didn't uh, tell him what I was speaking on, it fits in very wor- very, uh, very well with what I want to say today. Because we live in a world of very smart people we have some highly intelligent people they can do all sorts of amazing things from sending rocket ships into outer space and you know you name it cell phones are just an amazing technology in itself and all the things that we enjoy today the people are able to do and we've got all of this great knowledge if you will but yet we don't use it As we should. We don't use things in the right way. Man does things in the wrong way. They're more interested in building bombs than they are in helping people live better lives, helping people have better lives. And we can build bombs to exterminate life completely off this planet, and yet we can't solve the problem of homelessness and having enough food for people to eat. I one time saw a t-shirt a guy was wearing. It says, I'm a bomb technician. If you see me running, try to keep up. Now, that's, that's, a, that's an intelligent thing, right? A, yeah, makes sense. But why do we live in a world that has so many dumb, smart people? What is that? Dr. Winnell writes about wisdom here in the, in the comments. He says... Solomon wrote that one of the most important goals in life is to gain wisdom, and that the value of wisdom is even greater than rubies or gold. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs to help others gain wisdom, and he emphasized that the most important key to obtaining wisdom is developing a proper fear of God, having a sincere desire to follow God's instructions. And then at the end of his comments, he writes, The Apostle Paul admonished us to study the scriptures, which are able to make you wise. Do do a word study of the terms wise and wisdom to gain a better understanding of this vital subject. As you grow in wisdom, you will be developing one of the attributes of God and Jesus Christ. And we do need to grow in wisdom. We need to get wisdom. Obviously, as he said, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But wisdom has many attributes to it. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18. The Apostle Paul talks a little bit about wisdom here. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The message of the cross, the message that we understand what the cross was all about, what Jesus Christ's life was all about, is foolishness to the world, but it's the power of God. It's what saves us. It's why and how we are saved. He goes on to say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. God is going to destroy the wisdom of the wise of this world, not God's wisdom, but manly wisdom as they think it is. And he goes on to say, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And as I said, we look around this world and we see such an incredible amount of talent and knowledge and ability that's all being used And and funneled in the wrong direction. And God has made it foolishness. And it's all going to come to an end one day. We understand that. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. See, the world thinks the message that we preach is foolishness. They don't understand what we're saying because God, for the most part, hasn't called this world. He hasn't given them that calling yet and opened up their minds to see what it is that this message is really about. For the Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews. Crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block because it condemns them because they're the one that killed the Christ. And it's a stumbling block to them. It upsets them. They don't like that message. And to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's foolishness, and the Apostle Paul could say, I speak as a fool because God is not foolish and doesn't do foolish things. But if there was such a thing, it is so much greater than anything that we can imagine that there is no comparison. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. He has called us Out of this world. He has said that we are the foolish of this world. We are the weak of the world. But he is using us to do something. That is so very very important. That we have to put our whole lives into it. We are the weak of the world. God hasn't called all of the rocket scientists of the world so to speak. He hasn't called the presidents and the prime ministers and the kings. He has called a bunch of ordinary people. You and me, we're just regular people. There's not too many millionaires, and there's no billionaires that I know of in the church today. We're just regular people. We have regular jobs. We go about living regular lives. But God is going to use us to do something great. But we can only do that. We can only be great if God is working through us, and we have his wisdom. And that's what we want to look at and think about today. To think about wisdom and the importance of it, what it means to us, and what it means we should be doing. The Apostle Paul, a few chapters later, in chapter 11, verse 28 of First Corinthians, said the words, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and, and drink of the cup. And as we think about the time of year that we are in, we are at that time where we are preparing to take the Passover, this is something that we have to take seriously, that we have to be in-depth in our study and a look at ourselves. And what I want to talk about today is not just about wisdom, but as we look at ourselves, as we go through that examination process, we need to be asking ourselves some of these questions and are we doing some of these things that I'm going to talk about today? Because they're all very important things to God. We have to ask ourselves, do we have enough wisdom? Do we have the right wisdom? Are we using it as we should? In Proverbs 1 and verse 7, the wisest man in the world who has ever lived wrote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. As Dr. Winnell wrote in the update this week, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Excuse me, I misquoted earlier. The beginning of wisdom. Just, it's the beginning. You have to start there. And then in chapter 4 and verse 7 of Proverbs, he wrote that wisdom is the principal thing. This, in, in, in Proverbs 1, where he said, the beginning of is the same Hebrew word as the principal thing. You could, you could inter, interrelate those two words. And if you look those words up, it says that that can mean first, or choicest, or best. Best. Wisdom is the best thing. It's the first thing. It's the principal thing that we have to be concerned with. Because if we don't have proper wisdom, we aren't going to make it into God's family. We're going to fail. We're being tested We have to be able to pass that test. We have to gain the wisdom so we can pass. So how do we do that? Well, today, the title of my sermon is Examination of Wisdom. Examination of Wisdom. Because we need to examine ourselves and our lives to find out if we really have the wisdom. And what we need to be doing differently is what we need to find out so that we can have the proper wisdom And that we can be using it as we should. What and how and where do we get this wisdom? Do we get it from listening to the wise people of the world, so to speak? As I said, there's a lot of very intelligent people out there with all kinds of doctors, PhDs, and all the other things after their names. Making lots of money, teaching in the top schools in the world. Is that where wisdom comes from? Do we get it from reading books of men that men wrote? Yes, you can gain wisdom from people. You can gain wisdom from books. But then you say, well, do you really just get wisdom from the Bible? God's word is wisdom, is it not? So if we simply just immerse ourselves and read the Bible, we will be wise. Is that all there is to it? Do we gain true wisdom from reading this book? Think about it. This is the most widely published book in the world. More read than any other book. If that's the case, what's the problem? It isn't just about reading the Bible, is it? That's important. It's about really understanding it. Billy Graham has the same Bible that we do. The Pope has a Bible. But does he have godly wisdom? Does he understand God's laws? I think we know the answer to that. Isaiah 5 and verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Is that not the world that we live in? Is that not their wisdom? Don't be haters. We have to love the homosexuals. We have to love all of these things that people do. That's the wisdom of the world. They call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is the wisdom of the world. And he goes on in verse 21 to say, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. There's a lot of people out there who think they are really wise, who think they are really intelligent, that they really understand religion and God, and yet they really don't. The wise of this world is foolishness to God. God has made foolish the wisdom of this world, has he not? And we've seen that, and we can see that. My point is that just reading the Bible isn't enough. God is not yet calling the rest of mankind. He has called us. He has opened up our minds to understand this book. In a way that other people cannot. Because God has not opened their minds. That veil is still over their eyes. They're blinded to what these words mean. These words are words of life and truth to us. We understand what God is doing. And the great plan of salvation that he has for each and every one of us. We understand that. But the rest of the world just reads it and it's interesting stories. They don't get it. In order for one to be wise, one must have wisdom. So where do we get that? How do we get that? Turn over to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness and wisdom. So he starts out by saying, it's not just a matter of understanding and having wisdom, so to speak. You, in essence, have to use it in the right way. He goes on to say here in verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and are self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. That's what we see in the world. There's so much confusion in this world. People don't know what to think or where to go or where to turn, which side to take, so to speak. But then he says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. The wisdom that is from above, the wisdom that comes from God above is this. This is not the wisdom of the world. If you ask the world about wisdom and what type of things you have to do to be a wise person, they wouldn't say these things. They wouldn't say that it has to be pure and peaceable. They wouldn't understand if you said these things to them that it has to be full of mercy and good fruits. They would have to say, well, do you gain wisdom by going and listening to these wise people and reading their books and doing what they tell you to do? But that's not what God's word tells us, is it? Wisdom from above is where true godly wisdom comes from. And that's where we have to look for it, so to speak. The wisdom that we must have, the wisdom that we must exhibit in our lives, must come from above. And we have got to make sure and seek that wisdom that comes from above. It doesn't come easily. We've got to seek after it. We have to actively be engaged and involved. If we are not, we won't find it. God expects us to learn wisdom. To learn to use wisdom. A number of years ago, I I don't have an exact date on the sermon, but I had written down a quote from my father of his definition of wisdom. And I think it's probably one of the best very short definitions that make sense of what I'm talking about today and what wisdom really is and involves. He said that it is to have the capacity to correlate understanding with knowledge in order to make right decisions. Let me read it again. Wisdom is to have the capacity to correlate understanding with knowledge in order to make right decisions. It isn't just understanding about, well, I can understand and learn that 2 plus 2 is 4, but then you have to understand how you got to that end. How How did you come up with that conclusion? But then what do you do with it? Having that wisdom is just that. It's worthless to anyone but you, so to speak. Real wisdom involves doing something, Making right decisions. You have to know how to use wisdom. And then you have to actually go out and do it. Use that wisdom to do good. The wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. Without partiality and without hypocrisy. Right here in this one verse... We have seven keys, seven qualities, if you will, of wisdom. That if we will do these things, we will have more wisdom. We will understand more. We will be able to make good decisions. As we approach the Passover and examine our lives, these are seven things that we need to say and look at it at ourselves and say, do I have these seven things? Do I exhibit these? Are these a part of my life and the way I live and what I do and what I say? Or are they just words on the page? Because these are ways of life that we have to be living. So let's go through in the remainder of the sermon time these seven points and let's look at them and think about them from the standpoint of wisdom and what does that mean? and how do we get the wisdom that we need the first point there is that wisdom from above is pure it is pure that word pure can mean innocent modest perfect chaste clean the same greek word is translated as pure in james 3:17 is also translated in second corinthians chapter 1 i'm sorry chapter 11 Turn back there, 2 Corinthians 11. So we can better understand what it means to be pure and how we should be seeking that end. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in, in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband. That I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That's us. That's you and that's me. We are the bride of Christ. We are being prepared to be that bride. And we cannot be that bride if we are not prepared. If we are not chaste. Jesus Christ is not going to marry anyone who is not clean and pure and chaste. We are dirty. We have been dirtied by the world. We have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but God is cleaning us up so that one day we can be presented to His Son as His bride. It's rare in this world for people to get married and still be virgins anymore. That's the Non-norm—that's the unheard of, almost, so to speak—but yet we understand that that is what God wants for His son. He wants us to be clean and to be pure. We have got to be purifying ourselves with God's help. We can't do it ourselves, but we've got to be making that effort. We've got to be doing our part, just as we heard in the sermonette by Mr. Elliot about that—that that our children are called; they are given that invitation but then they have to do their part. They're not automatically just given God's Holy Spirit and and given entrance into the kingdom of God. They have to make the choice and the decision that they want to be a son of God. They've got to repent, be baptized, and then go through this Christian life that requires us to work and to purify ourselves, to continue that purification process day by day. In James 1.27, we read that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Unspotted from the world. What does that mean? We're surrounded by the world. We have to live in the world. We have to work in the world. We have to interact with people in the world on a daily basis. But we must not allow this world, in essence, to rub off on us with its evil. It's so easy, as you think about the example of the frog in the pan of water, that what a lot of us accept today as being somewhat normal, 50 years ago in the church of God would have thought to have been horrific, so to speak. We have been so overcome with this world and what we see in front of us on television on radio and newsprint all around us on the internet that we take it for granted that well this is just normal and we almost accept it see we've got to make sure that we are unspotted that we have cleansed this filth of the world from us so that we can be pure we must not allow what is normal and acceptable in society to affect our thinking our way of looking at things, because ultimately what we end up doing is compromising, compromising our standards. And God isn't about compromise. God does not compromise at all. God is merciful, and thank God that He is when we make mistakes and when He sees us compromise and do things that we shouldn't. But God does not compromise. His laws, His statutes, Do not change. There is no new truth. There is God's truth that was given in the beginning. And it is in effect today. The foundation that this world is based on is wrong. It's a foundation of vanity, of self-seeking, of lust. People want something and they will do what it takes to get it. And that's a mindset that we've got to make sure we don't allow ourselves to get sucked into because it's so very easy. And I think most of us know and understand that because we've all allowed ourselves at times, I'm sure, to lust after different things. Oh, if I could only have this. Oh, if I could only have that. But that's the way of this world. In Matthew 5, 8, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, as they're called, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yes, we have to have pure hearts. We have to have clean hearts. When we were baptized, we were given a new heart. A heart that was malleable. That God could shape and form. A heart that He could work with. He took that hardness, that hard heart away. And He gave us a new heart. But that hardness tends to want to come back to that heart if we are not loving God and obeying Him and staying close to Him and doing all that we can to please Him and obey Him. If our heart and motives are not pure, God is going to know it. We've got to have pure motives with everything we do. This world's motives are not pure. Their motives are based on their own desires and their own lusts. Not on wanting to please God. That's the furthest thing from their mind. You want to do what? Why would you want to do that? They want to get for themselves. If our heart and motives aren't pure, God is not going to give us wisdom. We have some wisdom, but God will continue to give us more and more as He sees us using the wisdom that He has given to us in the right way. As He sees us trying to purify our lives trying to be clean knowing we can't do it we can't do it fully but knowing that at least he sees that we're trying at least he sees we are making a good effort at it so to speak we need to remember that every decision that we make has got to be based on God thinking what would God want me to do what is right What are His laws? What are His statutes? What is the truth that God wants us to use and to live by? It's got to be pure and made from unselfish motives. And as we begin to purify ourselves, as we look toward the Passover and examining ourselves, trying to clean ourselves up and be pure and take that Passover from a pure heart, not from a hardened heart, not from a heart of this world, the second point and wisdom is that wisdom from above is peaceable. Peaceable. Matthew 5 9, once again going back to the Beatitudes, because a lot of the Beatitudes, in essence, relate to these points we're talking about today. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God. Are you a peacemaker? Do you consider yourself a peacemaker? Or are you kind of always a little controversial, argumentative? Do you start fights, arguments? Or do you make sure you avoid them? Or do you just ignore them and look the other way? I knew one individual years ago that a comment was made about him, and he said, he never saw a good argument he didn't like. The guy just loved to debate and argue about everything. But being peaceable requires that we are not only peaceable as individuals, and you say, I'm just a very quiet, kind, loving person, and that's great, that's good. But it also requires us to be proactive. Proactive, not just inactive. Because a peacemaker is going out trying to help and promote peace Not just with them and other individuals, but helping other individuals, as it were, with peace. When you see two of your friends or two individuals that you know, that they're having a constant battle, if you will. They're at war with one another, arguing and fighting over things. A true peacemaker is going to go out there and they're going to get involved and try to bring these two other people to a peaceful resolution. Not just turning a blind eye to it. A peacemaker, as I said, is is proactive, not inactive. You can all, we can all go live on some mountaintop in Nepal, and quote unquote be a peacemaker because you're not going to start any wars up there if you're just living up there by yourself. But God expects us to be involved and to be doing something, and that, as you look at these points that we're talking about, involves us actually being active and involved doing something with our lives, not just living for me and and what's good for me, but being outgoing and loving because that is part of God's commandments, isn't it? That we are to love our brother, love our neighbor as ourselves. And we can't do that if we just keep to ourselves, can we? We go out, we help others. We live in a violent world that seeks peace and doesn't find it. But it doesn't find it because it doesn't have the wisdom that comes from above. It doesn't look to God for answers. It looks to itself for answers. It looks to other people for answers. It looks to see what it can get. That's the world that we live in. If the world we lived in lived by every word of God, it would be like God's kingdom was here today. But it doesn't, does it? Turn now from evil, the old the song that we sing. Turn now from evil, do what is good, seek peace, pursue it earnestly. We sing that song many, many times. We have to seek for peace earnestly, pursue it. It's an involved thing. It's not just an inactive thing. It's an involved thing. Those words came from Psalm thirty-four, fourteen. But turn over to 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Peter quotes these, but he adds a little bit to it. 1 Peter 3, and verse 8. He starts this chapter with talking about wives and husbands and their responsibilities. And then he says in verse 8, finally, all of you, that's all of us in this room, everyone, husbands, wives, children, All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted and courteous. You see, being tender-hearted, being loving and kind, that's what God wants us to be. Be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. We have been called to this end. To love one another. To inherit a blessing. The blessing of eternal life. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God is against us if we aren't seeking peace, pursuing it. We've got to learn to be peacemakers. Sometimes to get a peaceful result requires us to get in and, in essence, be heavy handed, to take bold action. Some people just don't want to listen or pay attention. And as parents, we understand that. As we look at our children, and some of us have one child maybe that they're very compliant. And another child, you be need to be a lot heavier handed on. Dad loves to talk about me when it comes to that. Oh, Jim. When he was a little boy, the rod of reproof was a very handy tool in his hand. But yet, ultimately... Because we take action, because we do something, we can, in essence, produce peace. We can produce a peaceful atmosphere. We've got to ask God to give us the wisdom to find a peaceful resolution to every situation that we find ourselves in. When you find yourself in a, in a problem and there is something going on and you don't know what to do, if you just try to fix it yourself... You're not going to get it done. You've got to look to God to get it done. You've got to look to Him for those answers. Ask Him for the wisdom to be able to produce that peace, to get the peaceful resolution. If we ask Him, He will show us. Maintaining peace in your family, among the brethren, at work, at school, wherever it is. It's a constant part of our lives, and we've got to learn to do it with wisdom and love. And once again, looking back and saying, I'm examining myself, asking yourself, am I a peacemaker? Do I really pursue it? Is it important to me that there's a peaceful resolution in every aspect of what I do? Each of these points that I'm talking about today could be a full sermon and has been. And there's many sermons on the website that you can listen to. Dr. Winnell had a sermon on October 2nd, 2007, entitled, Are You a Peacemaker? I guess it's so old they didn't even give it a number, so I apologize for that. But <laughs> I was looking to see if there were some of these sermons there. But he gave a, per- a sermon, Are You a Peacemaker? Take some time and go back and listen to that and think about it, Are You a Peacemaker? The third trait of wisdom from above is gentle. It's being gentle. Are you gentle? Matthew 5.5, 5, going back to the Beatitudes, Jesus Christ said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek. It doesn't say the weak, it says the meek. Oftentimes people think of it, a meek person, as being kind of a weak person. Vine's Expository Dictionary says that this word's definition could be gentle, mild, or meek. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. If you want to inherit eternity, you've got to be gentle and kind. Being gentle is not something that most women have a big problem with. Most of them, just by nature, the way that God made you people, you're just not normally as rough and tough as guys are. For guys, being gentle, well, that's a little different. Some of us are more than others. Some of us are less. But it's something that we all need to work on. It's something we all need to be looking at and asking ourselves, am I actually living as a gentle man Not a gentleman, but a gentle man. The definition of this world for a gentleman doesn't necessarily involve being a real gentle person, so to speak. Being gentle and peaceable are similar in in ways. There's a lot of similarities between those two words, but they are, and there are some differences. Gentle wisdom is taking a calm, relaxed, loving approach to a situation first. Not jumping in, Full bore and jumping down someone's throat, so to speak. But going in gently and calmly, that's against my nature. I'm sorry, but it just is. I'm much more of an in-your-face type person in certain cases. And I have to learn to be more of a gentle person. I think a lot of you men out there probably realize that you're not probably as gentle as you need to be. And this is something that we have to try to think about because it is important to God. It is important to Him. Or it wouldn't be in His Word here. Being a big macho man, showing no pain or emotion, is what the world portrays as the manly man. But being a gentle individual doesn't mean you're weak and and you wimp a big wimp or something. It's just a matter of how you treat others, with kindness, with gentleness. One of the fruits of the Spirit, gentleness. Something that we all need to have and be. Philippians 4, 5 says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. Not just to your friends or your family. Maybe you can be a wonderful, gentle person with your friends and your family, but you get out there to work, and in the world, well, these are just a bunch of unrighteous, ungodly people. I can treat them however I want. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. The temptation may be there, but God's word tells us that our gentleness needs to be known to all men. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here was a gentleman who came along and saw a need. First of all, the priest And the Levite came by and they ignored the man that had been beaten and bloodied and lying in the gutter or the side of the road. They ignored him and they went on. Another individual comes along and he doesn't just say, well, I'll call some help for you. He took care of him. He took him in, as it were. He took him to the inn. He got him a room. He got him fed. He got his wounds cleaned. And he even left more money for the gentleman to be taken care of. He showed kindness and gentleness. Not just saying, hey, what's wrong with you? You're not hurt that bad. Come on, suck it up. You're a big guy. He took care of the man. He did it in a loving and kind way. And it's something that all of us are told to be. Even as a minister. One of the qualifications of a minister given in 1 Timothy 3 2 is that we are to be gentle, not quarrelsome, not causing fights and arguments and getting in the individual's faces. As a minister, we shouldn't be getting in your face every time you make a mistake. We should try to deal with you kindly and gently. One of the most important areas of gentleness that we all need to think about and work on is being gentle in the words that come out of our mouth. Because that isn't a matter of action. Gentleness is not just a matter of actions, it's a matter of words. It's what comes out of this big hole in the front of your face that we call a mouth. And it's what gets us in trouble a lot if we don't watch what comes out of there. We've got to watch what we say. Solomon said that a soft answer turns away wrath. Harsh words stir up anger. Be kind. Be gentle with what you say. Deal with others gently in how you correct them, if you have to. If your children are wrong, do you just yell at them every single time? Or do you try to correct them in kindness and love? Gently. Colossians 4, verse 5, says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. So we walk in wisdom toward those who are... He's not talking about here in church. Toward those who are outside, redeeming the time, making good use of the time. But then he says, Let your speech be always seasoned with grace. Seasoned. I'm sorry, be always with grace. Seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer one another. See, what comes out of our mouth has got to taste good, so to speak. Salt makes things taste good. Most people love salt. You put salt on something, you put salt on a potato, and it tastes good. The potato by itself is bland and tasteless. I love potatoes, but if you didn't give me salt with a potato, I wouldn't eat it. I don't like potatoes without salt. It tastes good. We've got to have our speech that what comes out of our mouth, others, in essence, it's good to them. It makes them feel good. It lifts them up and encourages them. It helps them. There's times for tough love. Yes. There's times when you do have to be more forceful. But you have to come to that point that you realize that you get to that point, not that you start at that point. You start out gently. If you have to escalate things, you have to do that. We think about gentleness and how we treat others and how we deal with others. We've got to think about God and how He deals with us and how He treats me as an individual. I thank God that He is gentle with me. I don't deserve His kindness and His gentleness and His love. If he were to treat me in the way I deserved it throughout my life, I would have had a much harder life. But God is gentle and kind, forgiving. That's the type of person that he is. He deals with us in that way. He doesn't just strike us down every time we do something wrong, every time you make a mistake. If God struck you down, God wants us to learn from our mistakes, and he's going to help us and point those out to us. They're going to, in essence, become our trials. But fortunately, God is gentle as he deals with us. As we think about our gentleness and wisdom, being and using wisdom when you deal with others in a gentle way is important. It's meaningful. And as, you, as I said, going back to the theme here of examination of wisdom, and you ask yourself, Have I really been a gentle, kind person this year? Have I treated others well? Have I talked to them nicely? Have I dealt with them in a good way? Have I learned to patiently use gentle wisdom in every situation? I doubt many of us can say we've done it in every situation, but hopefully as we think about these things and how important they are, we can, in essence, do better in the days and weeks and months ahead. And be thankful that God, as I said, is gentle and kind and loving with each of us. Well, the next point of wisdom here is that wisdom from above is willing to yield. Willing to yield. The King James Version translates that as easy to be and treated. Now, this is an interesting thing when you look at it because you say willing to yield. Well, you know what to yield means. We have the yield signs on the street. Yield to the other car. Give way to him. Let him go first. Put his needs above your own, if you will. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. Christ begins the Beatitudes with this because this is the first step that we've got to take as we, in essence, learn to live that way of life that Jesus Christ wants us to. We've got to have be poor in spirit. We've got to understand that we, in essence, aren't good. We have all sinned. We all have problems. We all have mistakes. We all have things to overcome. We've got to recognize that we need God's help. We can't do it on our own. And this being poor in spirit is the, is the realization and understanding that we aren't perfect. We make mistakes. Adam Clark's commentary says about this verse that one who is deeply sensible in his spiritual poverty and wretchedness. You understand you are a sinner. You understand your own wretchedness as it were. Does that remind you of anything? The Apostle Paul, what he wrote in Romans chapter 7? Oh, wretched man that I am. Here was one of the most, the greatest apostles that ever lived. And here he is, not at the beginning of his ministry, but later on in his ministry. And here he is saying, oh, wretched man that I am. He understood He was still weak. He understood he still had faults. He he still made mistakes. You read through that entire chapter and he's talking about the concept and the things that happen to us as we say, oh, I know what I want to do. I know what I should do. But that which I would do, I do not. And that which I would not or should not, that I find myself doing. You ever feel like that? Do those words ring in your ears sometimes? He understood his own wretchedness and that he needed God's help. He knew that he needed God's Spirit. And he was willing to yield to God, acknowledging his sins and his own wretchedness. And, once again, doing it in serving others as God used him to serve others, to help others. First and foremost, we've got to be willing to yield to the will of God. That's, that comes first. If we aren't willing to yield to God, we're not going to be able to do any of the other things. We've got to yield our lives to Him. To His will. His will isn't always our will. I can vouch for that. But if we really seek His will and do it, then we're beginning to understand that willing-to-yield attitude. Submitting our lives to God to be teachable. Knowing that God needs to teach us. We don't know of ourselves. We don't have wisdom inherently in us. God gives us this wisdom. He teaches us what we need to know so that we can have the wisdom to move on. James 4, verse 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, if we, if we submit to God... Then God will give us the strength to be able to resist the devil. We submit to Him. We submit our will to Him. We submit our lives to Him. Because He is our life, He is our reason for life, our reason for being. In 1 Peter 5 5, we read that we are to be submissive to one another. Submissive to one another. We submit first and foremost to God. But then secondly, we have got to learn to submit to one another. And that, sometimes, oftentimes, is harder than submitting to God. We know God is great. We know God wants what's best for us. And if we really believe it's God's will, we're probably going to do it. But submitting to another person, well, he's just another carnal human being like me. He's got problems. He's got issues to deal with. I know about him. If that's our attitude, we're not going to be willing to submit to others. God tells us that we're to submit to one another, to esteem others better than ourselves. Looking at the other individuals and saying, you know what, this other individual has some traits that I can learn from. He is a better person. He's more gentle. I can learn gentleness from him. I can learn faith from this person. I can learn patience from this person. If I will just, in essence, be submissive, then that's how you learn, by being submissive. We need to examine ourselves to see if we are willing to yield and to be submissive. If we don't have the attitude of yielding ourselves in these ways, we're not going to be able to do the things that we need to do to help others and to be used by God. And God will not, in essence, give us wisdom. If we've, if we've got to take what he gives us and use it wisely, put it to good use, yielding to others, submitting to others, and submitting to God, the wisdom that comes from above will help guide us on to how we should yield and submit ourselves in every situation we find ourselves in. If we just look to God, willingly, yielding to Him. Another sermon that you could listen to from this is my dad's sermon, number 681. Have you been conquered by God? Have you been conquered by God? Have you submitted your life to Him? Or have you just kind of partially done that? Willing to yield. Are you willing to yield to Him in every situation? The fifth attribute of wisdom that we're going to look at today is that wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits, mercy and good fruits. Do you think of yourselves as being a merciful person? Are you full of mercy? Maybe sometimes you show mercy, but not always. Matthew 5, 7, once again, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy. If we are merciful to others, we too will obtain mercy. When we think about what mercy is and what it involves, the fruits of the Spirit come to mind, to me at least, as we think about love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These, these mercy and good fruits work together. They're, they're tied together closely. As he says, that we are to be full of mercy and good fruits. Are you full of love? Do you have great joy in life? Or do you just kind of endure it? If our lives are given to God and we're seeking His will, we should be joyful in all things. Be joyful in trials and tests. Be joyful whatever happens. Knowing that God cares for you. Knowing that God wants you to have life. and eternal life in his family. When we think about mercy, who's our prime example? Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, Paul writes, And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He made us alive. When we were baptized, we were raised up out of that water. We were given a new life, if you will. We were made alive as future sons of God. If we will just do what He wants us to. If we'll just love Him and obey Him. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In his great mercy, he called us. He chose us. He brought us out of this world and he's giving us the greatest opportunity that there is. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve anything. We're sinners. We've all made Multitudes of mistakes. And yet God is merciful and kind to forgive us. We can be so very, very thankful that he is. God removes our sins and he removes the penalty of them if we truly repent. So also, we've got to show mercy and forgiveness to one another. Showing that loving, kind mercy toward others just as God shows it to us. If we want God to show us mercy, we have got to first show the mercy to those that we are around, that deal with us. If someone offends you, you don't hang on to that. If someone has greatly upset you, what do you do about it? Do you just ignore it and go on and kind of hold that in forever? There are people who do that. Some of us, once again, just by our makeup, so to speak, find it easier to forgive and to not hold grudges. But others just can't let go. Some people carry grudges for a lifetime. Families are split up because of it. Brothers and sisters and parents and children. Because they won't, in essence, show mercy. Show forgiveness. Matthew In Matthew 18, we have the example of the servant who was forgiven a great debt, a great debt by his master. And yet, what did he do? Someone who owed him a great, a small amount of money, excuse me, much smaller comparatively speaking, owed him money. Even though he was forgiven this huge debt, he went after. The other individual, with everything he had, had him thrown into prison. He wouldn't show mercy to that other individual. God has shown us great mercy. Why can't you forgive others? Why can't we forgive others for just little things, comparatively speaking? God wants us to be forgiving and kind. But if we don't forgive others... He is not going to forgive us because at the end of the story, what happened to the unmerciful servant in verse 34 of Matthew 18 and his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. God is not going to forgive me if I'm not willing to forgive you and vice versa. We've got to be full of mercy and good fruits. Showing our brothers that we love them and we care for them. That we are gentle and kind. That we exhibit those things in all that we do. Jesus Christ in the sample prayer said what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. True forgiveness is from the heart. It comes from within. It isn't a matter of saying, okay, I forgive you. How many times have you heard that in life? I mean, we were kids. We'd have fights with my brother or whatever. All right, tell your brother you're sorry. I'm sorry. I wasn't sorry. And I'm sure he wasn't either. But Dad said we had to do it, so we did it. And then he left the room, went back to fighting, probably. <laughs> True forgiveness comes from the heart. It isn't done begrudgingly, it isn't done because you have to. Oh, I don't want to. I really don't like him, but I'll write, I'll, I'll say it. You've got to forgive, to forget, to move on, to move forward, not looking in the past. Not looking about what's behind you, but looking ahead, realizing what God has in store for you. Mr. Ames, Sermon number 532 Blessed are the Merciful. Listen to it. Think about merciful. Think about being merciful, about showing mercy. Think about it as you prepare to take the Passover. Ask yourself, am I merciful? Do I show others mercy? Am I full of and I am I showing them good fruits? Am I taking that what is God has given, with, given me and helping others with it? Well, let's move on quickly to number six here. Wisdom from above is without partiality. Without partiality. If we combine this with all the other things we've just talked about regarding the fruits of the Spirit, and that you display those fruits of the Spirit and that mercy without partiality. You don't just do it to those that you like or that you want something from, that you care about, that can perhaps help you succeed in life or whatever. You do it without partiality. Our love for our fellow man, for our brothers and sisters, has got to be unconditional, just like our love for God. No greater love has a man than this than to give his life for a friend. The world should be our friends. We've got to be willing to lay our life down for anyone without partiality. Is your love conditional? Or is it impartial? Once again, we talked about the Good Samaritan and what he did. Here is a perfect example Of wisdom without partiality. Because here was a Samaritan that came along. As I said, the Levite and the priest, who was also a Levite, they walked by and ignored the guy. They saw him there. They knew he needed help. They did nothing. The implication is the man in the side of the road was probably a Jew. And along comes a Samaritan. And the Samaritans and the Jews don't get along. They did not get along. They didn't like each other at all. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans greatly. The Samaritans didn't deserve to live, if you will. And yet here was the Samaritan that came along and sees this Jewish man laying there. Whether he was a Jew or a black or whatever he was, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter to him. He helped the person because he needed it. He was impartial. We've got to be impartial. Today in Israel, they're fighting right across the border there in Syria. It's been ongoing now for over two years. Tens of thousands of people have died. The Golan Heights is what separates Israel from Syria. When we were there for the feast, you could see the Golan Heights from Tiberias. It's just on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. At the top of the Golan Heights... The Israelis took that back from Syria, and so they now control it. But there's an Israeli army hospital up there today. Why is it there? There's no fighting going on with the Syrians there. There's no real need for a hospital there, for a field hospital, but yet it's there. Why? The Syrians have been bringing their injured and leaving them at the Israeli border. And the Israelis are picking them up and taking them to this hospital and treating them. Here are people who would destroy Israel off the map. Just before we went for the feast last year, what are they saying? They said if Obama starts bombing us, we're going to destroy Israel. We're going to wipe Tel Aviv off the map. It's like if the Americans attack them and yet they're going to attack the Jews? That's their mindset. And yet, in spite of all of that, look at what Israel's to do. Without partiality. That's what it's about. This is what na- loving your neighbor as yourself is all about. Being impartial. It doesn't matter who he is, what his station is life is, what the color of his skin is. We've got to be impartial in helping others and showing love toward others. And if we are, God will bless us. God will be with us. He will take care of us if we do it in that way. And He will give us wisdom. Because as I said, if we're not using and doing these things, God is not going to give us more wisdom. And you've got to ask yourself, do you have that kind of impartiality? Have you been living according to that? Or do you sometimes look down on others because... Their poor, or the color of their skin, or whatever else. We need to be impartial and show unconditional love to our fellow man. Mr. Ames' sermon number five ten on unconditional love is another one you could listen to. Finally, number seven: wisdom comes, wisdom that comes from above must be without hypocrisy, without hypocrisy this world is full of hypocrites it always has been Matthew 23 Jesus Christ condemned the Pharisees and the scribes and over and over and over again in that chapter called them hypocrites woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites Jesus Christ saw what they were. He understood, just as we saw in the example of a good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite. They were hypocrites because they ignored that man and his needs. They knew they should help him. They understood God's laws. They understood that you should love and help your fellow man. But they didn't do it. They were hypocrites. This world is full of hypocrites. We've got to make sure that we examine ourselves, making sure that we are not being hypocrites. And I'll be the first to say, we're all hypocrites at at times. Some of us more than others. We can say the right thing, but then something happens and you don't do the right thing. We say, oh, I... I this, I can do that. I should do this, I should do that. This is the right way to live. But then, you end up doing something differently. We've got to make sure that we examine ourselves. Ask ourselves, am I being hypocritical in what I do and how I live my life? The Samaritan's motives were pure. Think about it. He didn't have anything to gain by helping this man. There was nothing for him. It did nothing but cost him his time and his money. He did it for the right motives. He was a wise man. His motives were pure. His motives were peaceable. When he didn't have any reason to be peaceable, but yet they were, they were gentle, yielding, and full of good works. He was doing good works, helping the individual that needed help. They were without partiality and they were without hypocrisy. He saw a need. He knew someone needed to help this man and that it was the right thing to do, and he did it. He fulfilled all of these things we're talking about here today. We've got to make sure that we don't allow any kind of hypocrisy to ensnare us and keep us from getting and using the wisdom that comes from above. Don't allow yourself to be hypocritical. Excuse me. We've got to learn to be truthful. We've got to learn to do the right thing, even when it is inconvenient, even when it costs us. Time, money, effort. Do it because you know it's the right thing to do. Because if you don't do it, and you know you should, you're being a hypocrite. There's much more that can be said about wisdom. The Bible is full of examples when you look at wisdom. But you look at the wisest man in the world and all that he wrote there in Proverbs Here's a gentleman who was given something that no one else has ever been given. Great wisdom, great understanding. The ability to be able to rule the nation of Israel, to be their king, to make the decisions that needed to be made. And yet, in spite of all of that, in spite of all of his wealth and having everything else, his heart was turned aside. He was turned aside He allowed himself to be drawn away. We've got to make sure that we are not turned aside. That we do not allow ourselves to be turned away from God. We've got to be striving to gain the wisdom that God wants us to have. To be using it to help others, to serve others. As we examine our lives in these things, as we go through each of these seven points, ask yourself, Is this how I live my life? Is this what I have been doing? Where can I improve? What can I do better? What am I not doing at all that I need to be doing? And what do I need to eradicate and not do anymore? It would be great if we could just ask God for wisdom. And we should. We should pray and ask God for wisdom, yes. That's important. Ask Him for wisdom. Solomon asked Him for wisdom and God gave it to him. But God isn't going to just make us all incredibly wise and perfect, so to speak, just because we ask. He's got to see that we are doing our part, that we're using what he has given us, that we're making wise choices, that we're helping others, that we are being pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. If God sees that that's the way we're living our life and that's what we are striving for, however imperfectly, He's going to give us more. He's going to expect more from us. But He will continue to give us more and more as we use what He has given us. Solomon said, Seek wisdom. And the Apostle Paul said, Wisdom comes from above. We have got to seek wisdom the wisdom that comes from above. We've got to seek it. We've got to want it. We have also got to use it. So as we prepare for the Passover, I encourage, yourself, encourage each and every one of you to examine yourself. Examine yourself. And look and ask yourself, have I been doing the wise thing? Have I been making the right choices? Have I been using the wisdom that God has given me in a way that can help and serve my fellow brothers and sisters?